Open mine eyes that I may see Glimpses of truth thou hast for me Open mine eyes, illumine me Spirit divine Love of my life, I am crying I am not dying, I am dancing Dancing along in the madness There is no sadness like to invite you to a soul-level encounter. Music has an incredible ability to proclaim the soul's language beyond what mere words can speak. That's what we seek as we invite our guests to share their song of the soul. You will hear the music that has charted the steps of their spiritual journey, that has provided a touchstone in the soul's dark night and sung the heart's awe and joy when come to the light. Over the next hour, you will be a witness and companion to our guests' spiritual path and sacred testimony. Welcome to Song of the Soul. fortunate to have as my guest today on Song of the Soul, Chester McCoy. Chester grew up Catholic in a working-class neighborhood of St. Louis when segregation was still the rule. His way out of the limitations and oppression of racism was through education, social work, and his rich connections with people, including college at St. John's in Collegeville, Minnesota. Chester has been writing songs for about 30 years now and is a Quaker a member of Minneapolis Friends Meeting. Hey, Chester. After a couple months of trying, we were able to find a day where both of us are available. Do you live the simple life that Quakers are supposed to live? I probably live more simply than others, and I probably live more extravagantly than others. So I guess it's relative. You know, I try. You know, I'm just coming off of one-year sabbatical. I'm going back to work at the Minneapolis Public Schools, and I'm going to be an intern assistant principal at South High this school year. So I suppose that the simplicity is going to be even more relevant to me in terms of how much time I'm able to contribute to the craft of songwriting now that I'm back at work full-time and back in the day-to-day grind. Do you actually get out and actually do music for hire uh, as it is in the world? Not as much as I would like. I'm in a band called the Earthquakers, and we perform at nursing homes and other events in the Friends community in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area. We have a accordion player, guitar, flute, vocalist, harmonica player, mandolin player, and a clarinet player. We play that way, but I don't perform any of my tunes at all publicly. 
I think you got into music way back when it was pretty common to have people do coffee house type shows, just go around and do that. Was that what got you in? You were aspiring to be one of the great tours in the coffee houses? Well, that certainly had an influence on me, Mark. I think what got me into being um, not so much a musician as, as much as a songwriter is growing up in St. Louis. My mother was a big influence on me. We had records by uh, Billie Holiday, Ray Charles, Roy Orbison. So we had all these great singers singing the music written by great songwriters. And I couldn't sing, so I thought, you know, maybe maybe some point in my life I'd like to be a songwriter. So I remember bugging my mother to get me a cheap guitar. I said, Mama, please, you know, if you just give me this guitar, I'll be happy for the rest of my life, you know. So she finally relented. We didn't have a very big budget in St. Louis, and uh, she bought me this discount guitar from a pawn shop. And I carried that thing with me through high school, on into college, partway into graduate school. It was just a beat-up old thing, but it was great. And that's where I learned to craft my style of songwriting. Can you give us a little bit of your background, Chester? You start from St. Louis. Uh, what level income, middle income, low, whatever? I mean, I grew up with 12 kids in the family. I'd definitely say we were lower income family. Did you go to Catholic schools coming up, too? No, I was raised Catholic. I went to public schools in St. Louis. In terms of the neighborhood, we were probably a working-class neighborhood. A lot of people had jobs. They went to work. They weren't paid what they should have been paid. It was a segregated community. I went to pretty much all segregated schools from elementary school up until high school. And when I graduated from high school, I went to attend college at St. John's University in Collegeville, Minnesota, which is predominantly white. So it was a different world. I remember going from St. Louis in 1968 to attend St. John's in Collegeville. And when I would go home over a break, uh, Christmas break or Easter break, I would try to explain to people what it was like to be at St. John's in St. Louis. And they would look at me like, oh, you got to be kidding. There's no place like that. Or when I go to St. John's and I talk to the people who grew up in rural Minnesota, I try to explain St. Louis to them. They look at me like, oh, you got to be kidding me. There's no place like that. So it was somewhat like going through some type of a twilight zone. But growing up in St. Louis with my mother and my four brothers. My childhood, as I recall it, was pretty happy. We had our share of traumas and tragedies, but we appeared to overcome them. My mother was a big influence. Sometimes I say to myself, well, I never really won the lottery, but I think I ran the lottery when I got Bernice for a mother. So that counts a whole lot for me. Congratulations. It's good to know a real lottery winner who doesn't let it go to their head. I think this kind of naturally leads into your first song. Because, you know, it's, I think it's the earliest song in this collection. Uh, all the songs that we're sharing here today are by you. What was the inspiration behind The Ballad of Willie Doyle? And about when did you write it? What did it mean to you? Well, The Ballad of Willie Doyle was written uh, from the point of view of the friend of the protagonist, Willie Doyle. And the friend is uh, nameless in the song. When I wrote the song, I was about 23 years of age. I had just graduated a year earlier from St. John's. I didn't understand the significance of the song until many years later. And when you listen to the song, you find that at the end, Willie dies. And I think years after I had written that song, it came to me that that song was about me. That song was about a part of me that died when I left St. Louis to go to St. John's. So... When I think about that song and how it came to me and what it meant, it took me years of, you know, I guess, maturation to really understand the meaning of it. But that's essentially when I came to understand, that's about me and the transformation that I had to make in leaving my hometown and going off to another place for education. 
I've heard it said, Chester, that that which doesn't kill you usually makes you stronger when you go through these kind of proofs. Did this experience of going off to St. John's to go to this almost lily white, I'm imagining, atmosphere, was that pretty tough on you? In which ways did it stretch you or change you? That's an interesting question. I think that being 18, I went to St. John's in the summer of 68, about two weeks after Martin Luther King had been assassinated. I found myself on a Greyhound going up there because they had a program where you could earn your tuition monies early if you went to work at the college. So I worked in the strawberry fields. I worked on the grounds crew. I laid sod. I did a number of different things. But the thing that the thing that I found interesting being away from home and being at St. John's is just discovering the humanity of people from different parts of the world. I made friends with people who were from inner city St. Louis. In my neighborhood, there were a big group of us that attended St. John's at that time. It had to be at least maybe a dozen guys that came out of Vashon High School and other high schools in St. Louis that went to St. John's because of a program there called Sophia Incorporated that helped to uh, send inner city young men off to college. And I was the first one to attend, and I went to St. John's. I also made friends with people from Hong Kong, people from the Bahamas, people from Kenya and Uganda. So it was just an eye-opener for me in terms of, wow, you know, we are all in some ways related. I'll never forget talking to Chinese students and hearing them talk about living in a single-parent family and some of the poverty that they experienced. And I thought, Oh, my God, I never knew this happened in any other place in the world. I thought it was just something that was just germane to my existence in St. Louis. And it was very much an eye-opener for me. Let's listen to the song. It's called The Ballad of Willie Doyle, and it is by Chester McCoy. Yeah, Willie Dog, he's a gambler. 
others say we know him, he's a thief. Chester, you wrote that song kind of just right after your experience at St. John's. Where did you go from there in your life? You, did you go right on to graduate school, and did you still have to be crossing over this boundary into the white man's world and uh, you know keep struggling up that ladder? I mean, a lot of people think by the end of the 60s or into the 70s, civil rights are pretty straightened out. The people who think that probably are the people who didn't have to deal with the short end of the stick. Oh, well, I can tell the listeners that things have changed and some things have stayed pretty much the same. If you're any discussion about the achievement gap that is going on in the public schools in the United States currently, you understand that the achievement gap is having a negative impact on students of African descent, particularly African American students. So from the standpoint of people continuing to live in poverty, from the standpoint of people not receiving adequate health care, you wonder what happened during the civil rights movement. On the other hand, there are a growing number of African Americans who are attending four-year institutions and earning their degrees, but it's not nearly enough. So I don't want to say that we're at a standstill, we're making progress, but it's not fast enough and it's not quick enough for some of our brothers and sisters who still find themselves impoverished. After I graduated from St. John's, I moved to Minneapolis. I had a series of jobs, well, actually two jobs, and a long period of unemployment. And after a while, I thought to myself, this is not going anywhere. I need to do something else. And I decided to apply to the Graduate School of Social Work at the University of Minnesota. I was accepted there. After two years of study, I received my Master's in Social Work. After I received the Master's in Social Work, I began to work in a series of jobs as a social worker. Actually, the first job I received after I received my Master's degree in Social Work at a child care center in North Minneapolis, I met my current wife, Nancy Peterson. So we've been married for 29 years, and it's all thankful to the fact that I received that master's degree, that I took that ad application and applied for the job, earned the job, so it's all good. Throughout this period, then, when you're going through your graduate studies and all this stuff, are you still identifying as Catholic? I mean, you just went to a Catholic university. Did that deepen your Catholicism, or did you go other places? When I went to St. John's, I went there with the intention of becoming a Catholic priest. I'll never forget, freshman year, I went home, 
it's Christmas break, or we call it today, winter break, went up to my mom's bedroom, sat on the side of her bed, and she said, are you still thinking about being a priest? I said, yes, I am. This is what I want to be. And she said, well, I have some other thoughts. And I said, oh, what, what are those? She said, well, I think there will be people who will call you father, but they won't be parishioners. And I said, who would call me father if they're not parishioners? She says, my grandchildren. So I thought, oh, okay. I sort of get it. And I think maybe she knew something about me that I didn't know. At any rate, I didn't want to acknowledge to her or maybe to myself that I was not as enthralled with my faith as I had been when I first went there. After about the middle of my um, freshman year, I left the Catholic Church. I was in the middle of the Apostle Creed and Mass one day and decided that that didn't really fit with me. Now, having said all that, I will say that when I was a Catholic, it was very good for me. It got me an education. It got me the discipline that I needed. So I have a lot of gratitude toward Catholicism for the things that it offered me during that time. And I suspect that, like most people, you're on this faith journey through your life. And sometimes that faith journey means you stay in one faith your whole life. And for others of us, it means that we change faiths. And I saw myself leave the Catholic Church not knowing what I would do for a long time, for about probably about an eight or nine year period of time. And eventually, I ended up becoming a Quaker. Well, let's step on to your second song. It's called The Lonesome Death of Ignatius of Loyola. I think I recognize the style in this song. Is Leonard Cohen one of your inspirations growing up? Is he one of the people you wanted to emulate? I learned about Leonard when I must have been about 23 or 24. A friend of mine from Hong Kong said, you never heard of Leonard Cohen. you got to listen to Leonard Cohen. So I listened to Leonard Cohen, and then some 20 some years later, I wrote this song, and I always say about the lonesome death of Ignatius of Loyola. This is a song Leonard would have written if Leonard had been Catholic. It's a pretty bleak-sounding title, The Lonesome Death. And I was just thinking of that in relationship to the fact that you decide not to become a Catholic priest. Is that maybe because you didn't want to be dying the lonesome death of Ignatius? What were your feelings about it at that time? Well, I wrote this song long after I had been Catholic, so I just think that maybe there's some vestitude. Well, there's always going to be vestitudes of the uh, religion that you grew up in with you. But the song doesn't really have anything to do with the Catholic Church. The title is just an abstract title that I thought up. It's really an abstract song in a way of speaking. It's sort of similar to some things like Bob Dylan might have done in his early days and some of the things that Leonard Cohen might have done with songs like The Stranger Song or The Master Song. Let's listen to it. It's The Lonesome Death of Ignatius of Loyola. And just like all the other songs on this collection, it's by Chester McCoy. Fragmented conversations are lost on a dime. Spurious observations with no sense of rhyme. Five aces have fallen to the floor. Opportunity just walked past my door. said, opportunity, why don't you walk on in? She said, boy, I will not be back this way again. Sunrise, sunsets, and I have no regrets. Rivers run, dogs bark, shattered silhouettes. 
Twelfth night I've been locked inside this room Friday the 13th day of June A yellow cue ball hangs suspended in midair I'll flick the ash from my cigarette Say three to the corner pocket Life's so damn unfair A crippled cockroach crawls across the floor I drain the whiskey from the glass I call out for the whore I'm blinded by the Jack Daniels and the Benzedrine Nobody hears my pain, they all ignore my screams I'm just one more lonely parasite One more misbegotten John looking for a fight Just an illegitimate Jesuit alone in the night Just an illegitimate Jesuit alone in the night Garden variety, illegitimate Jesuit alone in the night. Another illegitimate Jesuit alone in the night. Just an illegitimate Jesuit alone in the night. Chester, you're just a couple years older than me, so. We share a fair amount of life experience pretty close on. Are you still going through your youthful angst, or have you put that long behind you? After you get through 29 years of marriage, you know, maybe we can give up some of that tempest that drives us when we're young songwriters. Ah, the youthful angst. Would that I could have enjoyed youthful angst, Mark. But, you know, I was the oldest of five boys. My mom was a single parent, so it meant that I had a number of parental responsibilities. I actually tell people that I skipped adolescence. I didn't really go through the adolescence or the rebellious period that people talk about. I'm like, geez, how did they get to do that? How come I didn't do that? Well, you know, so I was helping my mom with the rearing of the four brothers, so I wish I had had that experience. On the other hand, I'm glad that I didn't. I know that it made me a better father, and my daughters who are 25 and 27 can attest to that. What was your first job, and when did you get it? How old were you when you had your first job where you were starting to pull money in? I was about 16 years old. I was working at the rectory of the Catholic Church in my parish church, San Alfonsus in St. Louis. I worked at the desk at the rectory, answering the phones and helping people who would come in to buy religious materials. That was probably the first job I recall. I ask you that in part because the next song is Where I Grew Up. You want to say a little bit more about this environment you grew up in St. Louis, or should we let the song say it? Well, I think the song pretty much speaks for itself. Just for background, I call myself first-generation civil rights. So I grew up in St. Louis between 1950 and 1968, and it was a pretty segregated city during the majority of the time that I was growing up there. So, And I think that where I grew up speaks for itself. Chester's going to tell us more about his growing up in St. Louis in the song Where I Grew Up. Written and performed by Chester himself. Where I grew up, we played ball every day, dreaming that we could be the next Willie Mays. Where I grew up, fire hydrants kept us cool in the heat of a summer day. 
weren't allowed in the public pools where I grew up. Everything was black and white. We colored outside the lines, fighting for civil rights where I grew up. Where I grew up. Separate part of town. If you knew it was good for you, you got home before the sun went down. Where I grew up, everybody knew your name. People looked out for you. No matter your claim to fame, where I grew up, and I could still hear my mama's voice. Reminding me that I had a choice Where I grew up Music on the radio Gave us strength for another day Gave us faith there was always hope Where I grew up We colored outside the lines But that was a different place And those were different times and Chester, I don't know if I actually told you earlier, but I grew up Catholic too. And I'm one of the people who feels relatively positive about the influences. It got me to where I am, and it really gave me a lot of strength and direction and rich resources. How do you end up feeling about your Catholic upbringing and your growing up in the area you did in St. Louis? Do you end up feeling positive or mainly bitter? or how, What kind of mix of feelings do you have about it? Well, at the time that I was Catholic, there was a Pope, John Twenty-Third, And I remember John Twenty-Third being really popular and very progressive. I remember looking at Catholic brothers and nuns and priests during the civil rights marches and thinking, I'm a part of this religion that is going to change the way the world is. We are going to make this huge radical shift in the world. I remember thinking about things later on like liberation theology and thinking, yeah, this is the way the world should be. I can say that I was disappointed by the direction that the church took in later years and that may have contributed to a reason why I left you know, at the time that I was Catholic, like I said, it fed me, it nourished me, and got me to where I am today. I'm curious, your four brothers, are they still Catholic or mostly so? Well, two of my younger brothers are deceased, and the ones that are just a couple of years younger than me, I'm not sure. In fact, I know that one of them is no longer Catholic, and I think one of them might have returned to the church. So my mother still attends Mass religiously every Sunday, so... Out of the family, I know she continues to practice Catholicism, and my other brother, I'm not sure. Let's listen to another of Chester's songs, Where I Grew Up. Where I grew up We played ball every day Dreaming that we could be The next Willie Mays Where I grew up Fire hydrants kept us cool In the heat of a summer day Weren't allowed in the public pools Where I grew up Everything was black and white 
We're colored outside the lines Fighting for civil rights Where I grew up Where I grew up Separate part of town If you knew it was good for you You got home before the sun went down Where I grew up Everybody knew your name People looked out for you No matter your claim to fame Where I grew up And I could still hear my mama's voice Reminding me that I had a choice Where I grew up Music on the radio Gave us strength for another day Gave us faith, there was always hope Where I grew up We colored outside the lines But that was a different place And those were different times Where I grew up Chester, what year was it you said that you and Nancy met and started to get involved? This would be about 1975. I had just graduated from the U of M, had my freshly minted MSW diploma, showed up at work. I was a parent educator at a place called Parent and Child Center in North Minneapolis. Nancy was the teacher for the two-year-olds. We served birth to three-year-old kids back in those days in this child care center. My initial interactions with Nancy when I met her was that she's just reminded me of a sister that I never had. And so I would tease her and maybe teased her unmercifully. Uh, I remember one time she got so upset with me that she threw, <laughs> threw a paintbrush at me, and, that, and probably because I deserved it. But after a couple of months of that, I kind of realized that, you know, what I'm really doing is flirting with this woman, and what I really should do is ask her out. I did, and she said yes. 29 years later, I'm not teasing her as much, and she's not throwing paintbrushes, and we're still getting along just great. Nancy's white, and so that means, again, you're straddling this world. You're reaching out and expanding your experience across the world. I'm kind of wondering if on some level this next song, Bad News, was any kind of the bad vibes you carry about you know, mixed racial marriages. Our society is really pretty harsh on them frequently, and I'm wondering if there was any resonance between Bad News and the messages that were passed to you about relationships that are straddling culture? No. Bad News is just a song that I wrote that came to me. It doesn't really refer to anybody's race in the song. When Nancy and I announced to our friends and families that we were going to be married, I believe her sisters were very supportive. Her mother and father thought this is not a good thing. My family was very supportive. I had a couple of friends who said, this is not a good thing. But as with any type of relationship, it's the two people who are involved who have to make that determination about whether it's a good thing or not. And we determined that it was. The song, Bad News, it's just a song I wrote. I think I had aspirations of being an alternative indie type song, and this is what I produced. i got to say that in terms of values, at least this song holds high the fact that you're really going to care about your partner. A lot of people, when they go into a relationship, it's only me, me, me. But one of the things I note about this song is it's actually saying, 
you know, you're good for me, but maybe I'm not good for you, so maybe this relationship shouldn't be. Is that a value you actually hold, or is this just something that came out in the words of the song? Well, bad news is really about a person who has an addiction. They recognize the addiction. They know that it's not good. They can't control it. And they know that it weakens the person that they care about the most. So it's basically a confession to that other person that, yeah, as much as I really like to be with you, this addiction is a lot stronger than both of us. And as a result, I don't want to be bad news for you. I don't want to pull you down. I don't want you to be in the pain that I am in. You know, and I think a lot of times with people with addictions, there's this narcissism that's an element that kind of rears its ugly head. So I think this song is about someone who is narcissistic and addicted, really can't control it, and is basically telling his partner, I really don't think that I'm good enough for you. On the other hand, I wish you'd hang around with me a little bit more, but, you know, that's just a ploy, and if they do hang around with this person a little bit more, they're going to be dragged down to the level that the addicted person is in. Is this part of Chester's biography, or is this social commentary, social observation? Oh, strictly social observation. I didn't have the opportunity or the wherewithal to be addicted. That's a lot of work to be an addicted person. I'm just grateful that I did not get that personality trait. I have a couple of siblings who do have it, and it's tragic and it's traumatic, and it costs them a lot in terms of relationships, in terms of family, in terms of everything else. It's just overwhelming. And I can say for myself, I never wanted to be controlled by a substance or a person. So I think what happens to me is that I become angry and upset if I think that I'm going to be addicted to something because then it means it controls me and I don't like that. Well, Chester, those are sentiments I can definitely empathize with, having observed a lot of the same behavior in my own family. So let's listen here. Chester's fourth song in his Song of the Soul. It's by Chester. It's called Bad News. not about you leaving I knew you had to go You told me so last summer Before the final show Goofy when I'm with you Like a kid with a brand new toy You were my tattooed angel Wanted to be your tattooed boy I was only hoping that you stick around Till I got my feet back on the ground I don't want to be your bad news I don't want to bring you bad news I refuse to be your bad news I don't want to be your bad news It's all about the choices The ones I fail to make You were driving for perfection I was drowning in mistakes You're living for the future I'm dying for the past Your life is overflowing My life is an empty glass I was only hoping 
Chester, I've just been with you singing in Quaker circles. You know, whenever a group of Quakers get together these days, pretty much there's some music striking up, even though we don't do it in our meetings for worship. But I did have the privilege of seeing you on stage in an improvised concert where I actually heard this next song, What Inspired Searching for the Pentecost? And about when did this come into your life? Oh, I wrote Searching for the Pentecost about five years ago. I was on a two-day retreat by myself in central Wisconsin, playing on the guitar, and all of a sudden this song sort of just dropped into my lap. I didn't know why, but I just accepted the gift and was grateful that I received it. When I see the word Pentecost, I usually think of people who are, let me see, the stereotype is the Bible thumper. But that's not what this song sounds like at all. What does Pentecost mean to you? How do you react to that word or to language that's usually around with Pentecost? Searching for the Pentecost is another version of what people typically ascribe the Pentecost to be. And in this version, it's about people who are banding together to deliver good news to the people in the world. So in some ways, it could be similar to Pentecost, I suppose. But searching for the Pentecost is basically searching for the opportunity to bring the gift of love and hope to others who may not have that in their lives. Are you a social activist? I mean, through your work, you're doing some of this. Where do you actually feel like you can reach out and change the world and make it so that you're bringing people to that better life? I think that everybody has that opportunity. I mean, I think a lot of people think that they need to be like Mother Teresa or Gandhi or Martin Luther King, but all of us can make that difference by reaching out to our neighbors, to our friends and family to be supportive, to nurture them. So I think that it happens in those ways. Where it happens for me is in the work that I do in the community. I've been a social worker working for the county. I've been a mental health therapist. I'm currently working in the Minneapolis public schools. 
for the previous two years, I worked at a school for youth who were impoverished and had severe mental health issues. I learned a lot working with that group of kids. It's not the easiest work in the world. It will try one's soul, but I found it to be very rewarding. What I try to do is to give people the best service available, to constantly ask myself the question when I'm working with them, would I want this type of care for my own children? If the answer is yes, then I know I'm doing the best job that I can do. I'm glad you're out there doing that work. Let's take a little trip with Chester here, searching for the Pentecost. just about five years old, I think you said. The next one, I think, goes back quite a bit further because you told me that you wrote it before you had your daughters. So about where does this come into your life, and why did you write Soft Cotton Petticoat? Well, as I said, I wrote it for my children before they were born. It's called Soft Cotton Petticoat, so I was really hoping I would have daughters so that they would fit with the song. No, I was hoping that they would enjoy the song, Fortunately, I did have two daughters, Megan and Hannah, who are now 27 and 25. I wrote the song to be a gift to my future children so that they would have something that they could listen to and say, oh, yeah, my dad was thinking about me before I was born. Did you actually sing it to them much throughout their childhood, or is it the kind when they come home, they still say, Daddy, tuck me in and sing me the song? 
you know, I just had a conversation with my youngest daughter the other day, and she was talking about the fact that she really enjoyed the fact that her dad wrote songs for her when she was a child. And talking with my older daughter several months ago, she asked me about the songs that we used to sing to her, and she will say how important they were for her. And so I think that in the process of raising them, I wanted to raise them to be strong women with good character and soft cotton petticoat and also the readings that we did with them before bedtime. We had this whole bedtime ritual that would include uh, stories and relaxations and sometimes songs were all a part of giving them the character development that they would need to have when they went out into the world. Did you raise your daughters as Quakers all along the way? Well, Nancy and I became Quakers when Megan and Hannah were pretty young. So they were raised as Quakers. The oldest daughter, Megan, attended Scattergood Friends School in Iowa. Our youngest daughter, Hannah, is living in New York, and they both pretty much identify as Quakers. Let's listen to this song that was written before Chester had kids, but written for the two daughters, which were just a gleam in his eye at the moment. The song is Soft Cotton Petticoat. said earlier, Chester, that the religion and the spiritual formation that we get as kids kind of reverberates throughout our life. I think this next song is kind of a sign of that. 
You told me earlier, epistle number nine, as you call it, is kind of a love letter to a nun. What inspired this one for you? I think that epistle number nine was the result of just kind of thinking and reflecting back to the heyday of the civil rights movement, thinking about people who were at the forefront of that civil rights movement, and then recalling that there were a number of Catholic nuns who were really involved in making that social change that was so needed in this country at that time. In Epistle Number 9, I essentially took the character, Sister Maria, and placed her in that situation. And the song is a reflection of a person who Sister Maria influenced. He's going back to essentially look for her, to look for the history that they shared. Let's listen in to Epistle Number 9, kind of a love letter to a nun helping the movement forward. I'm riding the number four bus. I got to transfer to the past. Driver says this is hope place. This stop will be the last. Last stop to the past Searching For old memories These dim deserted streets The last time I saw you You had a rosary Jeans and a rosary. It was 1967. The streets were ablaze. You spread a gospel of compassion through the smoke and the haze. Always cool under pressure so calm so sincere fear was not an option you made that very clear there was no time for fear here's to you Maria gifts that you gave your gospel of compassion your courage and your faith I wrote you many letters I guess I should have learned unlike my unanswered epistles You never would return I prayed for your return Here's to you, Maria The gifts that you gave Your gospel of compassion Your courage and your faith
Here's to you, Maria. And the gifts that you gave. Your gospel of compassion. Your courage and your faith. Well, let's talk about your last song for the Song of the Soul. It's called The Hardest Times. I think it's your most recent song. What's it about and what's it mean for you now? Well, about August 28, 2005, I was on another retreat and I was listening to public radio and heard about the levees in New Orleans, breaching about the devastation that was going down in New Orleans. This song was written as a way to reach out to the people who were impacted by Hurricane Katrina. Another reason that the song means a lot to me is that my mother-in-law, Julia, died about two months later, and I sang the song for my wife, Nancy, as a gift to her to help her in the grieving process. So it's both a song of support to the people of New Orleans and the Gulf Coast who were devastated by Hurricane Katrina and the personal loss of our family, my mother-in-law and my wife's mother. Let's listen to that song, Offering Support, Promising to Be There. It's called The Hardest Times. I build a bridge through the darkness To show I understand In the pain of your sorrow I will glove your hand It's no secret Life ain't always kind I will be here In the hardest times I can offer The shelter Of my warm embrace You can offer The power of your love and grace No matter the reason No matter the rhyme I will be here In the hardest times I will be here In the hardest times when you're down to your last nickel You can have my last dime When the mountains of life Are too hard to climb I will be here In the hardest times In the hours of despair Drink from my cup Through your flood Of tears I will lift you up And when your grief Has reached its prime I will be here In the hardest times 
in the hardest times When you're down to your last nickel You can have my last dime When the mountains of life Are too hard to climb I will be here In the hardest times Be here in the hardest time. You know, Chester, in thinking back over these songs, there's not a lot of explicit religion or spirituality in there, which doesn't really surprise me as a Quaker. I mean, I do understand how spirituality is part of what you live as opposed to any kind of creed. If you tried to put some of your religion or spirituality into as clear a statement as you could, what would you say? What could you say? Well, I think I'd use the Quaker expression of seeing that of God in everyone, that we all embody characteristics of the divine, and we should all be given the understanding and the respect that we do carry that with us. So looking at our sisters and brothers as being part of us and all of humanity as being part of the divine. Chester, you've got all this music. I'm betting that if someone wanted to have a CD of your music, they could probably send you about $15 and you'd send them a CD of good 15 or more of the songs, right, wouldn't you? Oh, sure, that could happen. Send it to the brotherman01 at gmail.com and we can make a deal. Thanks for sharing your music. It's great to hear your heart singing out through the songs. Well, thanks, Mark. I appreciate the opportunity to share my thoughts and music with the listeners. Thank you for taking the time to interview me. You've been listening to an interview with Chester McCoy of Minneapolis Friends Meeting. You can hear this program again via my website, northernspiritradio.org. You can find my other programs there and links and information about each of them. Song of the Soul is produced by Mark Helpsmeet. If you'd like to share your Song of the Soul with the listeners of WHYS-FM Radio, please contact me via my email address, helpsmeet at usa.net. That's H-E-L-P-S-M-E-E-T at usa.net. And please join me Sundays at 11 a.m. for Song of the Soul. You can be Sing out a song of the soul.